This episode of The Sweaty Penguin is brought to you by Doritos. Is your mouth a very large triangle? Try Doritos today. Welcome to episode 60 of The Sweaty Penguin, Antarctica's hottest podcast. I'm your host, Ethan Brown. It is Friday, October 1st. You can subscribe to The Sweaty Penguin on Apple, Spotify, Google, Podcast Addict, wherever you get your podcasts. Be sure to leave a five-star rating and a review, and you will get a shout-out at the end of the show. The other way to get a shout-out? Join our Patreon. For as little as five bucks a month, you'll also get access to some Sweaty Penguin swag, exclusive bonus content, and more. You can do that by heading over to patreon.com slash thesweatypenguin. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Today, we are talking about the United Nations, or as world leaders call it, summer camp. I mean, I know that the people at the UN probably work on stuff other than making s'mores, but don't you like the idea of a bunch of diplomats sitting in a circle making lanyards together? This week, we're going to talk about the United Nations Environment Program, or UNEP. And yes, Olivia Rodrigo, you might be getting a little deja vu, because we actually already did an episode on UNEP back in episode 10 in 2020. UNEP is the world's most powerful international body on the environment, the Manny Pacquiao of environmental institutions, if you will. And we talked about how UNEP is the branch of the United Nations responsible for convening countries together and assisting them when it comes to the development of environmental policy. UNEP writes major reports on the environment, provides shorter summaries of issues for broader audiences, runs campaigns like World Environment Day, and makes excellent videos like this one. Hey, don't work too hard, Stano. I'm not. Gardening relaxes me. Garden doesn't come with fresh lemonade, does it? No, comes with the benefit of saving water. It's Stano, my favorite. Stano, did you take my advice from episode 10 and whack your neighbor over the head with your gardening can? Oh, I know you didn't. You're too nice. For goodness sake, you're Stano. You could do no wrong. Keep up the great work, Stano. Your neighbors will come around. What I didn't tell you in episode 10, though, after introducing you to Stano, is that this video was for a campaign called Solve Different, which was basically about resource efficiency. Stano is willing to put in tedious work to create a garden, but his neighbor isn't. Most of us aren't. And that's fine. None of us can be Stano, he's on another level. So the video basically advocates looking for solutions that are both environmentally friendly and easy. A type of solution you know I love and I try to seek out for you all every week. But coming from UNEP, this video is a little odd, right? First off, why is the most powerful environmental body in the world that's responsible for convening 193 countries on the biggest global environmental issues making a video geared toward individuals about their environmental footprints? And second, did this video even make an impact when at the time I'm recording this, the video only had 1,950 views? 
I'm not sure why making this video was a priority for UNEP, and I'm not going to criticize them for it because I don't know. I'm sure there's a good reason. But I do think this points to a bigger issue, which is that there's some uncertainty as to what UNEP's mandate is. Is it single-handedly solving climate change biodiversity loss and every other global environmental issue? No. Is it making cute videos of gardeners getting ragged on by neighbors? I assume not. I think it's somewhere in between. But as we'll talk about today, that mandate is really important to understand. Why is that? Well... Back in episode 10, we talked about how if UNEP wants to accomplish its mandate, whatever that may be, then it likely needs some type of reform. As it stands now, UNEP has very little authority to enforce treaties, and UNEP has very little money, in part due to a funding structure in which member countries only volunteer to contribute. It's the environmental equivalent of going out to dinner with friends and trying to split a check six ways when you ordered two pitchers of margaritas and all had different amounts. We'll break all that down more in a minute, but you can see why that would make it really difficult to accomplish any global environmental goals. And as a result, there's a lot of debate amongst environmentalists, scholars, and world leaders about how to fix that. Some even proposed turning UNEP into a much larger, specialized organization, similar to the World Health Organization or World Bank. So today, if you'll bear with me, we're going to take a little dive into this important academic conversation. We'll discuss what reforms people are talking about, what issues might exist with them, and how we might best think about UNEP reform moving forward. Sounds super theoretical, I know, but since UNEP is the most powerful environmental body on the planet, really digging into how best to improve it is absolutely worthwhile. But first, since our original UNEP episode was so long ago, I wanted to give you a quick review, so for the first time in Sweaty Penguin history, I will attempt to go through all of episode 10 in 90 seconds. So let me start my stopwatch, and here... We. Go. UNEP is a subsidiary body of the United Nations General Assembly, which aims to assist countries in promoting sustainability and adopting environmentally sustainable policies. But UNEP has limited effectiveness. One such reason is relatively low funding for the program, as their funding is mostly voluntary from member countries. And since it's voluntary, a lot of countries don't contribute as much as the UN recommends, sad. And obviously it makes sense that countries want to prioritize their tax dollars domestically rather than giving it to a foreign agency. But in the case of the environment, environmental issues are global issues, sad. And low funding means less ability for UNEP to take on bigger projects and ultimately help all these countries' economies by improving the environment in a way no country could do single-handedly. The main reason for UNEP's limited success, however, is the very nature of the international system. Because there is no world government or world police, it's just countries having a free-for-all. There is no authority above the level of country in the hierarchy of the international system, which means any environmental treaty agreed upon by the countries, any reform to UNEP, or even the decision to be a part of UNEP itself has absolutely no enforcement mechanism. Countries can do whatever they want environmentally, regardless of what they previously agreed to. 
and in fact, they do. And again, since things like climate change and large-scale pollution cannot be limited to national borders and thus require international cooperation, the idea that UNEP doesn't have more power really puts off a lot of people. Also, Frank sang a song, and I made a joke about bumping into a kindergarten teacher at the urinal, which was made up in case you were wondering. Now that you've got all that, let's get into UNEP reform. Many experts have weighed in, and while their opinions obviously contain a great deal of nuance, there seems to be two general camps that emerge regarding institutional reform of UNEP. And yes, it's a heated rivalry. It's like Ivan and Aaron on Bachelor in Paradise level heated. One group advocates keeping the same general shape of UNEP with smaller reforms. The other wants to perform a drastic overhaul of UNEP and change its institutional form, as Utrecht University's Dr. Frank Bierman argues here. We have to find ways of breaking up the existing institutions and trying to develop new institutions. I think we need bold ideas about how we can really reorganize governance at the planetary scale to, to cope with the challenges of climate change, biodiversity, food, water, all these other crises. Dr. Bierman actually mentions a few levels that this sort of reform could look like in his presentation. It could be UNEP turning into a World Environment Organization with the powers of, say, a World Health Organization, or it could be upending the entire UN system and coming up with something else. But either way, Replacing UNEP or replacing the whole UN is a really big task. It's one thing to see that as a laptop sticker next to one with the crest of a high school backgammon club, but for a global environmental scholar to argue for something so drastic is really telling. Dr. Bierman must have really little faith that UNEP's current setup can work if he argues in favor of starting a whole new organization. Given that he cites several others in his presentation, it's clear he's far from the only person advocating that. So you're probably wondering, what's really the difference between UNEP and this vision of a so-called World Environment Organization? For one, UNEP is a pretty good acronym, but not quite as fun as WEO, and absolutely not as fun as the name Global Environment Organization, or GEO, which, quite honestly, I can't comprehend why we don't already have. Honestly, we should just cut this episode short and go with GEO, because it's such a fantastic acronym. But more importantly, UNEP has a different institutional structure from what an organization would have. UNEP right now is what we call a subsidiary body of the United Nations. Subsidiaries work through the UN directly, meaning they have coordinating powers within the UN, but not their own autonomy on matters of international law. They actually report to either the UN General Assembly or ECOSOC, which isn't a sock made out of organic and free trade hemp, but the UN Economic and Social Council. A subsidiary can also report to both the General Assembly and ECOSOC. So when UNEP makes a decision, like bringing on a new executive director, for example, it isn't done internally, but through a larger UN entity. As a subsidiary body, a small amount of UNEP's funding comes from the UN regular budget, while the vast majority of its funding comes from donations and, as we discussed before, voluntary contributions from countries. A WIO, or GEO, on the other hand, would be what we call a specialized agency. 
You may not have heard the term UN Specialized Agency before, but you have definitely heard of many of them, such as the World Health Organization, the World Bank Group, the Food and Agriculture Organization, etc. In total, there are currently 17 specialized agencies of the UN. These specialized agencies are autonomous organizations linked to the UN. In other words, while subsidiaries act primarily through the UN, specialized agencies act on their own accord. Their membership is open to all countries contingent upon the country's ratification of the treaty constituting the agency. But one key difference to note from subsidiary bodies is that specialized agencies typically function without any funding from the UN regular budget. In fact, they operate on mandatory contributions from member states, as opposed to subsidiary bodies' reliance on voluntary contributions. Another big difference is that specialized agencies are autonomous. They do not report to ECOSOC or the General Assembly, unless it's been 20 years and they really miss them and they just want to send a text to see what's up and how they're doing. There can't be harm in that, right? In the context of the environment, what would a specialized agency look like? Well, there's a few ideas out there, and I won't go through them all, but I'll lay out three broad categories that seem to be the most common. First is a simple upgrade, where the agency has the same job description as UNEP, but a change in structure, so they can do things other agencies do, like creating binding treaties, having a mandatory funding mechanism, and otherwise pack a bigger punch on the international stage. It's like an economy comfort plane ticket. Different structure, but same destination. Although, now that I think about it, is it different? Is it different really? Is one extra inch of legroom worth 50 bucks when either way, you're balled up like a snail trying not to knee the person in front of you? Second is a sort of consolidation, where UNEP, the World Meteorological Organization, and a bunch of others disband and form one big WEO or GEO. That would not only give UNEP more powers, but create a way bigger global environmental body and give it much further reaching authority. In other words, environmental ghostbusters. Actually, now that I think about it, scrap agencies and subsidiaries. Let's just do environmental ghostbusters. Third is creating what we call a supranational body, or a body that actually creates policy at a larger-than-national level. Think of like the European Union or the Security Council. These bodies can actually create binding policy without a consensus vote. Given how rare supranational bodies are, and given that all the countries would have to agree to this, this idea is a bit less commonly discussed. But all three of these ideas are pretty bold, right? Just the idea of making it mandatory for countries to give money to another foreign agency may sound exciting to some and ridiculous to others, even if we all agree on the end goal of a stable climate and healthy environment. So the question has to be asked, maybe we're not happy with a subsidiary, but are specialized agencies better at their jobs? Let's have a listen to what the medical director of Your Excellent Health Service, Dr. Charlie Eastman, is saying about the World Health Organization. Ebola uncovered all of WHO's previous weaknesses, an inability to get the necessary resources, poor coordination and communication, and WHO regional offices, the lack of an open society approach embracing NGOs, and addressing the cultural impact of disease. Despite the loss of life, no single person at WHO accepted responsibility. 
That would not happen in a well-functioning organization. Dr. Eastman is actually quoting Georgetown University's Dr. Lawrence Gostin here, but the fact that two scholars from two different countries agree on this furthers my point even more. The World Health Organization has problems too. And it's not just any problems, but organizational problems. Poor coordination and communication, not embracing NGOs and open society, and other inefficiencies. Keep in mind that this clip was in November of 2019, before the COVID-19 pandemic started. And these experts were ticked off about WHO's inability to manage the Ebola pandemic, whose death count was in the 11,000s. Hearing that, I can only imagine they'd have strong opinions on the WHO's ability as a global organization to tackle pandemics today. And if you've listened to our World Bank episode, you know it's not just the WHO. I think I was optimistic, but I was pretty tough on the World Bank too, in part because of some of these questions of efficiency, of coordinating others on the global stage. I get that coordinating the world stage is difficult to do. It's impossible to even coordinate a bunch of high schoolers in a production of Annie on a stage. But if this is a pattern, if this is something specialized agencies struggle with, then that doesn't bode well for our WIO or GEO. In fact, at the foundation of UNEP in the 1970s, the founders intended for the body to generate cooperation among states while also improving synergy between existing UN agencies on environmental issues in order to generate action on environmental issues using existing relationships and resources while adding new ones. More specifically, the first executive director, Maurice Strong, saw UNEP's role as maintaining knowledge of global policies and actions on environmental issues, determining which environmental issues should be prioritized and brought to the attention of state governments, and identifying gaps in environmental knowledge amongst other agencies and institutions, and helping them perform on environmental issues. In other words, UNEP would be a body for informing, convening, and coordinating. Since that was the goal, the founders did not even try to make it a specialized agency. They chose to create a subsidiary body because this institutional format was seen to be more flexible, while specialized agencies were seen to be more cumbersome. So within the global environmental players, should UNEP be the mom of the friend group as it were? Or have they outgrown this role? When you hear former UNEP Executive Director Akeem Steiner speak less than four months ago, you'll see that his philosophy on UNEP isn't just in line with the founders, but really enthusiastically so. Embracing that dynamic that you are not there to tell countries what to do, but to enable them, first of all, to understand what needs doing, secondly, to convene them and allow them to find better ways forward. And then thirdly, connecting brilliant ideas. I think part of what multilateralism, what UNEP has done over 50 years almost, is to allow countries to learn from one another. Nearly 50 years after UNEP was founded, a whole Cameron Diaz into the future, its leadership is talking about identifying issues, convening countries, and coordinating them in a path forward. With decades of scholars pushing WIOs and GEOs, UNEP maintained the same philosophy that the founders had and continued to believe in it. Akeem Steiner's excitement for countries connecting and learning from each other is palpable. And if he's excited about UNEP playing this role, then it's hard for me to argue UNEP's role needs to be changed. That, then, would mean UNEP's current form is perhaps appropriate for what UNEP is trying to accomplish. 
And this brings us full circle to our original UNEP episode. Then we ask the question, how do we make UNEP more effective at helping the environment on the world stage? And the conversation about fund reforms in all shapes and sizes quickly ensued. But when we start thinking about reforms, we're led to the different question of what UNEP is and ought to be. Is it in charge of the environment? Is it in charge of making Stano videos? Or is it a convener and a coordinator on the international stage, where countries, NGOs, other UN-specialized agencies, and more come together to work on global environmental issues? It's okay to argue that the founders had the right idea, and it's okay to argue times have changed. You might like the idea of UNEP's mission being to gather information, convene countries, and put them on the right path, and you might like the idea of a bigger organization that can muscle its way to some more action, even if that means giving up some of its social skills. You might also just like the idea of a specialized agency as a symbolic gesture, saying the environment is as high a priority as the other agencies. This is an ongoing scholarly debate, so I'm not going to say there's a right or wrong answer. But before you buy yourself a UNEP-themed yard sign and tattoo of reform proposal onto your lower back, I do want to remind you that this is a scholarly debate. When global climate governance is in the news, it's basically never about upgrading UNEP. The last big story was in July, actually, and it was about a meeting with the G20, 19 countries in the EU who comprise 20 of the largest economies on Earth. And now, energy and environment ministers from the group of 20 rich nations were unable to agree on the wording of a key climate change commitment. One of the striking points uh, was the wording surrounding a 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius limit on global temperature increases that was set by the Paris Agreement. Let me repeat that for you. 20 countries can't agree on the wording regarding a global temperature rise of 1.5 to 2 degrees Celsius, which if you'll remember from past episodes, is exactly what they agreed to in the 2015 Paris Climate Agreement. Countries are literally trying to convince each other to stay on board with their voluntary agreement from six years ago. Since this is really the latest news story in the world of global climate governance, it's important to remember that any UNEP reform, large or small, requires the buy-in from every country involved. Even if you think UNEP should have a different mandate and needs to be reformed, is it worth putting energy into that? Or would it be a better use of the short time these countries spend together to generate some results within the current framework? To borrow a quote from a paper written by one of our former guests, Dr. Adil Najum, none of the institutional challenges identified here are likely to be resolved by merely rearranging the organization of chairs on our planetary Titanic. When we look at a news story in the real world like this recent one on the G20 meeting, it's hard to imagine countries reluctant to commit to a 1.5 to 2 degree warming goal would suddenly change their mind if UNEP were a different acronym. Unless Stano were at the meeting, I'd imagine it wouldn't make much difference. Look, I know that this conversation is a lot. If it didn't make your brain hurt, please lend me yours because I've had an Advil and a Tylenol this week. But it's also frustrating to see that when UNEP isn't working, the cool sexy reform idea has so many cons too. 
But that's exactly why I think taking this step back before picking our reform idea and asking what we actually want UNEP to be is so critical. Maybe we'll keep tweaking UNEP or maybe we'll create something new and bigger, but without knowing what we're trying to accomplish with the world's most powerful international body on the environment, we're at a bit of a dead end. And if we can figure out what our goal is and how best to get there, we'll see a better climate, healthier environment, and hopefully, Stano won't have to be this worried about conserving water. Do you ever drink Pepsi and think, I wish these people made chips? If so, Doritos are for you. Pepsi announced last year that they would only buy palm oil for Doritos from sustainable sources. But hey, that doesn't apply to the eight-year-old bag of Doritos in the back of your pantry, right? Take that, forests. Doritos. Because if you're constipated and have diarrhea at the same time, basically cancels itself out. The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Welcome back to The Sweaty Penguin. With me today is Dr. Maria Ivanova, Associate Professor of Global Governance at the University of Massachusetts, Boston. Dr. Ivanova, welcome to the show. Thank you. You've recently published a new book, UNEP at 50, the untold story of the world's leading environmental institution. Could you tell us a bit about the book? Well, thank you for having me on this uh, great show, uh, Ethan. I really appreciate the opportunity to join you here today and to talk about this uh, this new book. Indeed, this is the first book about UNEP. I know you've had uh, conversations about this institution on the show. I know you've had conversations about other international organizations on the show. And surprisingly, there has been no academic book about what I call the anchor institution for the global environment the United Nations Environment Program. So I have written that book now. So that's the core of the book. It is the first book about UNEP, about what has worked, what hasn't, why, and what could be done about it. So I start with the history of how this organization was imagined, how it was created, how it was led, how it has performed, why, and uh, what needs to change for the next 50 years of this global environmental institution. And just so our listeners know, and thank you so much for this, by the way, you've already donated a signed copy of your book to us, which we will raffle off to our patrons once we hit 25 supporters on Patreon. We're about halfway there, so definitely get in on that. You've got a 1 in 25 shot at getting this book for free. And through your book and your other research, you've actually criticized a lot of the ideas for UNEP reform that other scholars will discuss. What types of reform proposals specifically give you pause, and why are you concerned about them? For my dissertation, I decided to look into why don't we have such an organization? Wasn't anyone thinking when they were creating UNEP? in uh, the early 1970s, weren't they thinking about it? And so I went 
into the archives of the United Nations in New York, in Geneva, in Nairobi. I went into the living rooms, the kitchens, the offices of many of the people who were there at the beginning when uh, people were imagining this new institution because I had the good fortune of uh, doing this when many of these people were still alive. And so I could talk with them. I could look through their correspondence, the archives, read and kind of triangulate what I was finding out. And so I found a different story than what I was reading about in my textbooks. My textbooks would say, strong states strongly opposed the creation of a strong environmental institution. And it made sense to me as an international relations student at the time. Yes, why would states want to create a strong organization? And yet the archives showed a different story. And the conversations with these people showed a much more nuanced story where people like Ambassador John McDonald, who was at the International Organization Unit of the U.S. State Department, and he imagined UNEP before it was even thought of, before it was created. He said, no, the United States did not want to create a weak institution. I wanted to create a strong organization. And he led that effort along with many others, of course. And so the story that I had been reading through my scholarly work and that I had been hearing through my engagement in policy turned out not to be right. That UNEP was not created as deficient by design. It was not purposefully created to be weak. But the thing that did hold true was that it had weakened over time. And so this is where um, kind of my cognitive dissonance came, <laughs> came to, to the fore, is if that was the vision, then what happened over time? And so this is why I took issue with the reform proposals that said, let's create a world environment organization that would be bigger, stronger, better because that had been considered and uh, the government officials at the time, the thinkers at the time decided that it didn't make sense. And uh, then my scholarly enterprise was, well, why did what they created not deliver the results that they envisioned? And so that has led to, to my thinking, to my writing and to my proposals over time. So you say that the founders of UNEP did not want to create a global environment organization because it didn't make sense. Why did they come to that conclusion? Why did they choose to design something smaller and more nimble? So 1970 to 1972 is when these preparations for the first UN conference on the human environment take place. You have environmental issues that have come to the fore and require a new institution. At the same time, you have a UN system that is already pretty developed. And a lot of these agencies that exist, whether it's the UN Development Program, whether it's the World Health Organization, already have environmental activities. UNESCO, for example, had the Man and Biosphere Program. And in order not to create excessive competition, among these sister agencies in the UN and recognizing that the environment was not a separate issue. It was not a sector. 
governments and scholars and thinkers decided that what needs to be done is collaboration. You need to create a body that would bring everyone together rather than a separate pillar that would take pretty much everyone in a silo. And so this was at the core of the argument. You cannot create a competitor. And at the same time, you cannot create something that is over everybody to tell everybody what to do. Therefore, what was the, their answer? If we create a small, nimble, convincing agency that could move around and could see what everyone is doing on environmental issues, it could connect those pieces into a, uh, a whole that was bigger than the sum of the parts. That was the reasoning. And that rationale certainly makes some sense since the environment is so interdisciplinary and intersects with so many other issues. But when I think about other global issues like human rights or hunger or health or security or any of these things, they also intersect with a lot of other issues. Is there something uniquely interdisciplinary about the environment where UNEP would need to be able to form partnerships in ways others wouldn't? Is environment different? Yes, it is. Environment is different because it is indeed part of everything. When UNEP was being created, and I think your listeners will appreciate that because your show always has this sense of humor in it, the talk of the town, a little bit derogatory at the time, was, oh, UNEP, that's 1970s. The other agencies called it the United Nations Everything Program because it had to touch upon everything. Environment is everything. It is not outside of us as humans. We are part of the environment. And so by definition, this institution actually has to do everything. UNEP should proudly be the United Nations Everything Program. But for that, you cannot be just bigger, but you have to be better than yourself every day. Not necessarily I have to be better than the others. You have to be better than what you're doing today. And I think that's that's actually a pretty good ambition for this organization to have is to be the United Nations Everything Program and for people to come to it because it will have insights on everything that connects to environment, which also connects to us as human beings. So planetary health and human health. But how do we do that? And so when I looked at UNEP, I see it is in authority to work on the environment broadly defined. So the everything program, right? But where it has encountered more difficulties is being the authority on the environment. And that is where we see this this fragmentation, this splintering of the global environmental system And honestly, a lot of us are in this space, in academia and in NGOs and other institutions claiming to be the authority on whether it's climate or endangered species or different issues. But only UNEP has the legal mandate to look at the environment in its entirety, but it has to gain more of the authority so people come to it with um, requests for collaboration, to be uh, the kind of catalyst that it was envisioned. And so now you can see why I argue that making UNEP a specialized agency will not resolve that dilemma. 
And I think that's exactly why people will talk about World Environment Organization or get frustrated because we look at an issue like climate change. It's been spiraling out of control. UNEP has accomplished some things, but there's a long way to go. If UNEP is the leading global authority on the environment, or whatever you want to call it, do they bear more of a responsibility for that? Is that a failure of UNEP, or should they never have been expected to be the ones to solve climate change in the first place? That's, that's, a, very, that's a very good way of putting it. What are we supposed to expect? And that changes over time, right? Because now, Ethan, the expectations on climate have shifted they are with the UN Framework Convention on Climate Change, right? And we're not expecting UNEP to, to deliver on climate. We also realize that climate is a really big issue where you need the private sector, you need government, you need academia and civil society all to deliver in, in unison. However, UNEP does have that environmental mandate, and so it has a role. What is the role of UNEP. UNEP's reports on emissions gaps, for example, of what is necessary and what is what is happening have been outstanding. They have been in front of the debate. They have urged scientists, they have enabled scientists to produce more, to contribute to, to that space and have made policymakers think about it. But UNEP is not the organization that we place our expectations for climate action on directly. But yet, we have to think of UNEP as the only institution that actually has the formal mandate for all of the environment. UNEP is the only agency with the mandate to see the 3,000 piece puzzle from 30,000 feet up. And all of these other institutions have a legal mandate for part of it, whether it is species, endangered species, the Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, or Mercury, the Minamata Convention, or Climate, the UN Framework Convention on, on Climate Change, or Development, UNDP, or Human Rights. But UNEP sees the environment, should see the environment from this holistic perspective, and should be the space where influencers and leaders could come and put those pieces together that would make the whole greater than the sum of the of the parts one of your current projects i found really interesting correct me if i'm wrong but you're scoring countries on their climate progress could you tell us about this project yes we have started an initiative on assessing to what extent countries implement their international environmental agreements. Climate is not one of them yet because it's a big agreement and there were a lot of changes as a result of the Paris Agreement, so it requires a, a lot more work, but we, we will get there if we have the capacity to, to do so. What we have done is look at the conventions in two clusters, pollution and conservation. So the pollution conventions that deal with chemicals and waste, for example, and the conservation that deal with biodiversity. So Convention on International Trade in Endangered Species, on Migratory Species, on the Preservation of Wetlands, the Ramsar Convention. And so what we decided to undertake is uh, before we can say whether these conventions are effective, whether these international agreements are effective, we have to know whether they're being implemented. 
have they done what they promised to do? One would expect that developed countries will do better because they have more money, because they have more capacity, they have more developed science and scientific institutions, better institutions politically in terms of civil society and so forth. And developing countries have very little of that and therefore they will not perform as well. The story we find is counterintuitive and yet quite positive that many developing countries are doing much better than we expect. And we have found that adopting a name and a claim strategy helps to empower countries, not only to see what has worked, but also to see what has worked among their peers and learn from others. And so this encourages this South-South learning. So we think that through this work that we have created, we are enabling countries to know about their own performance, but to also learn from what others are doing. And rather than feel threatened that they will be named and shamed, to actually rise up and be named and acclaimed for what is working and then learn from others where they do have challenges. Since countries seem very open to wanting to work on the environment, learning from each other, and getting this data you're collecting, and in terms of UNEP, it sounds like they want it to be a functioning organization. What exactly is standing in the way of all of this just clicking into place and happening? Because it seems to me like if UNEP wants to change its philosophy or recommit to its original philosophy, it can just do that. We don't need this whole conversation about reform. So what I guess would be the next steps after this conversation? So when we say countries, unfortunately, that's not a static concept. They change, right? And so when national governments change, national policies change, and therefore international engagement also changes. And so we have not seen a time in history when all member states would want the same thing. So by definition, when an international institution like the United Nations, whether it be UNEP or UNDP or WHO or UNESCO or any other part, is striving to achieve certain results, there will always be member states who oppose and member states who push forward. And uh, ultimately, Ethan, yes, we have to have a collective action, uh, vision and, and response but there is no recipe that we could say if we do X, Y, Z, this, this will happen. And this is why I think that having more conversations nationally, internationally, globally about these issues, making more people aware and making people demand uh, more action is absolutely critical because people have to demand it from these international institutions, but also from their own governments. And then we have to act in ways that also jibe with, uh, with our own narrative and with our own values. And I know you have been talking about various uh, aspects of this environmental agenda on, on your show and giving us, in a sense, guidance on what to do, how to behave when we are faced with these global problems. But I have to tell you, there, there is no silver bullet. We cannot say if UNEP were to do X, Y, Z, because UNEP is member states. Dr. Ivanova, thank you so much for joining us. My pleasure.
This wraps up episode 60 of The Sweaty Penguin. Remember, you can get a shout-out at the end of the show by leaving a five-star rating and a review on Apple or Podcast Addict. That helps boost us in their algorithms. You can also get a shout-out by joining our Patreon, like our next shout-out, KB. Thank you so much for joining our Patreon, KB. Keep an eye out for your Sweaty Penguin stickers in the mail. I literally have a thousand of these stickers in my apartment, and they're so fun. I want to get them out in the world, so really, hop on that Patreon, people. Patreon.com slash the Sweaty Penguin. It takes two seconds. It really helps us out, and we've got so much great stuff on there for you to enjoy. Once again, The Sweaty Penguin is presented by Peril and Promise, a public media initiative from the WNET Group in New York, reporting on the issues and solutions around climate change. You can learn more at pbs.org slash perilandpromise. Thank you all for listening, and I'll see you next week. Today's episode was written by Caroline Kale and Ethan Brown, fact-checked by Olivia Amate, and edited by Frank Hernandez. Our producers are Olivia Amate, Ethan Brown, Megan Crimmins, Shannon Damiano, Frank Hernandez, Dane Kim, and Caroline Kale. Our ads were voiced by Robert Branning, and our music was composed by Brett Saka and Kevin McLeod, licensed under Creative Commons. Special thanks to our Emperor Penguin patrons, Lawrence Harris and Brownies Central. Clips today came from UN Environment Program, Center for Sustainable Society Research, UHH, TEDx Talks, UMass Boston, and Plus TV Africa.